you have a Bible, open it to the Gospel of Mark chapter 4. Gospel of Mark chapter 4. All right. So the last announcement before we get into the Mark's Gospel uh, is a reminder. We talked about this a couple weeks ago at our annual family meeting. Um, but our kids ministry, uh, our kids church director is my wife, Angie. Uh, she wasn't supposed to be the kids church director when she got here. And, um, but she has taken that role on, but it hasn't been sustainable. And she's been up there a lot. And so I fired her this month for, for one month. I told her she's got a sabbatical. There she is. She loves it when I talk about her in front of everybody. And, um, so, so she's not up there at all this month. Now we still, I'm double checking Angie. We still need staffing help the last two weeks of the month. But once March is over, what I, what I told the church at our family meeting, and I'll say this to everybody, is we're just going to make a choice together. There's no vote. There's no guilt trip. But we're making a choice together. Do we have kids' church regularly or not? And I believe we should. I believe you should have an informed decision that if we don't have kids' church regularly, um, that will be bad. Uh, it'll be bad because churches that don't have kids' church regularly do not, do not grow. Uh, churches that don't have kids church regularly, that means they're going to be in here. So if you're like, somebody needs to shut those kids up, don't complain because they'll be in here. And also, quite honestly, um, sometimes the Bible talks about things that are like TVMA or you know, R-rated. And we try to keep things generally PG-13 in those situations. But if there's kids in here, it's going to get, I'm going to pull my punches real quick. And I'm not going to talk about certain things that are in the gospel because the kids wouldn't be ready to hear that. So we're, I think it's up to us to just make this choice together. So uh, what that means is on a practical level, uh, we know not everybody is able to serve in kids' church. And there are people who like, we're, we're not expecting. There are people who are like, nobody's expecting you to do it. But for those of us that are able to make the trip up the stairs once a month, you know, and, and up there, uh, I think that's the challenge uh, that God has given our church uh, in this next season. If you feel guilty about anything I've said, by the way, then I apologize because I didn't say it right. Uh, there's too much guilt put on people. And in church over the years, too much guilt's been put on people. This is just a reality that our church is going to have to make a decision about together. And it's not just kids' church. I know that the, the nursery could always, you know, you can't make it upstairs, that's fine. The nursery could always use helpers. Um, but together as a church family, taking care of this next generation that God has given us. Amen? All right, Mark chapter 4. I'm going to do something that I have never done. I have been uh, teaching the Bible for almost 20 years, and I've never done this. I am going to, this week and next week, teach the exact same passage. It's not, I'm not going to say the exact same thing. It's going to be two different messages. But the reason I'm going to do that is, as I was going over this story, I couldn't, I couldn't decide which thing to focus on. I thought there was two different narrative themes that were very present, very true, and I didn't want to pick one and ignore the other. Now, usually this story gets talked about in two different Bible studies. There's the story of Jesus calming the storm, and there's the story of Jesus casting the demon out of the guy and then sending him into the pigs. They're actually the same story. So let's read together. There's a prologue to this. Last week, my friend, uh, Pastor John, was here, and he preached uh, on some parables that Jesus taught. 
He skipped over one, the parable of the growing seed, but I think it's, it's sort of a prologue. Jesus said, verse 26, Matthew, or sorry, Mark chapter 4, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day. Whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, and though he does not know how, all by itself the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts his sickle out to it because the harvest has come. Now back then, our farmers today are doing all kinds of irrigation and pruning and trimming to get the most yield and the healthiest crop. But back then it was pretty basic. You had the seed at the right time of the year, you put the seed in the ground and then you hoped that you got a good crop of whatever it is you were planting. And they didn't have all the science knowledge. They didn't understand what was going on with germination and all these things that happen when a seed is planted into the ground. They just knew that it happened. The leaves in the trees change color and then they fall and now it's winter and then you're going to start to see leaves reappearing on your trees. And you know, we all know we could like look it up on Wikipedia and find out how that works. But most of us don't know, right? Most of us, we have a general idea, but like, do we know the specifics and all the science names for it? No. We know that it happens. This is the prologue. Jesus is saying there is a harvest coming. And he's about to get to work. Now in verse 35, it says that the day that day when evening came, so Jesus has finished teaching these parables. It's now getting dark, and it says in verse 35, he said to the disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. And Jesus was in the stern, the back of the boat, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we are drowning? And he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Then he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Then they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot. But he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. 
And he begged Jesus again and again to not send him out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go to them. And he gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd and about 2,000 in number rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this to the town and countryside, and people went to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And when the, then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. And Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how much he had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Now as you read that, it's the same story. It's not the story of the wind and the waves and the story of the demon-possessed man. It's the same story. It's the same trip. It's the same day. Verse 28, Jesus tells them a parable about a farmer who sows seed, and in due time, there comes the moment when it is time to harvest. Jesus has been teaching. He's been ministering. But he knows that on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, on the other side of that great lake, is a harvest that needs to be reaped. He's going into battle. It's the battle for a man's soul and for the spiritual destiny, the eternal destiny of a whole town and region. And this week we're going to talk about the preparation for battle. And next week, we're going to talk about the actual battle itself a little bit more and what's going on. But the idea is that there is a harvest coming. And in verse 28, it is important to know that God is the one producing the harvest. God is the one producing the harvest. Jesus said, you put the seed in the ground and you don't even know what's going on. All of a sudden, three, four, six months, however long it is for that crop, the next thing you know, there is life. Whether you see it or not, God is working. And he is getting a harvest ready. It's interesting to me, in verse 27, he says, the sower goes out and sows the seed. And then what happens? Nothing. If you're a farmer, you go out, you, you plant seed, and then you walk away. And it feels like nothing changed. There's still a bare patch of dirt. Nothing in your world has changed. But God is working. You know, it may not feel like things change when you pray. It may not feel like things change when you study 
the Bible. It may not feel like things change when you actively engage in Christian community. It may not feel like things change when you do something, what we would call a spiritual discipline. But it is. And it does. It, it's one of those things, there's a saying that says, you know, people, people overestimate what they can do in a day and way underestimate what they can do in 10 years. That one day of prayer, one day of Bible study, one day of fellowship and community might not change your life. But 10 years of it certainly will. Absolutely will. God is working a harvest and it may be an unseen season, but that doesn't mean that what we do for the Lord and to grow ourselves spiritually isn't doing anything. There's benefits and rewards. There's blessings to be had. There is spiritual fruit to be reaped and collected. And he's going. He said, we got to go somewhere. And he doesn't tell him where. Did you notice that? Verse 35, he just says, let's get in the boat. We're going to go to the other side. Hey, where, where are we going on the other side? That's what my kids ask me that all the time, right? You get in a car? Where are we going? And then, you know, if, if we need to like, let's say that we tell them that we're going to like, hey, we're going to Trader Joe's. But, you know, we have to like, we have some library books to return. So we're going to go a little bit out of the way. We're going to drop the books off the library and then go to Trader Joe's. And we turn a different way than they're used to. Wait, why are we going this way? That never happens, right, dear? I'm, I'm exaggerating, right? <laughs> Jesus tells them where they're going. Hey, we're going to go to the other side. He doesn't tell them why. He doesn't tell them that there is a man who needs to be delivered from horrible bondage. He doesn't tell them that there's a cleansing work he wants to do. I think sometimes, if we're honest, and this is me, I'm not going to point at you, I'm going to just point at me. If we're honest, we're like, we're like whiny children. Why did we turn this way? Why aren't we going the way I think we should go? Do you really know what you're doing? Can I see your license? And God is saying, I have a plan. And this is the way I want you to walk. And we're just going, are you sure about that? But the truth is, a second grader and a kindergartner have no business deciding which way the car goes. And it's not that I devalue my children or I don't respect them. I think my kids are pretty, pretty neat kids and they're pretty smart. But they have no business telling me where to go. And I have no business telling God where to send me. You have no business telling God what to do with your life. It's not your life. It's not my life. Whatever we have has been given to us by God. We've been entrusted with it. But we're responsible to him. So they get in the boat and they don't know why they're going. It's funny how people are about that. If they knew, hey, we got to get in this boat, it's going to be rough sailing, it's going to be a really crazy night, but the reason we're going is to save somebody's life, maybe they'd be like, well, you know, we can, anybody can get through anything for 10 seconds, and if you add up enough 10 seconds together, we can get through this storm. But then that puts them in the choice mode. I then decide whether this storm is worth my time. 
Instead of saying, God, you are my God. Jesus, you are my Lord. I am led by the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to go where he sends me because I am the servant, not the master. But that, the thing is, there was legitimate danger. Verse 37 tells us that the boats were in danger of being swamped. Um, our, uh, our, our friend, our co-laborer, Victor Mayoral, he's the missionary that is in Mexico, and we're going to go work with them in, in June. Victor grew up about halfway down the Baja Peninsula in a little fishing village, and his dad was a fisherman. And they would get on these little kind of dinghies. Dinghy is the best word I would have for it, like a little small boat with a little outboard motor. And they would go out onto the Pacific, and then they would, they would fish, bring it back in and sell it. But they didn't have, especially back in like, like it was like the like early 70s, like they didn't have all the fancy radars. They didn't have, you know, up-to-the-minute weather reports. And he's told me about a few times where they'd gone out, and he's like, I didn't know if we were going to make it. I thought we were gone, you know, because the, the storm got so bad. And that's how it was back then. You just got in the boat and you hoped the weather stayed nice. And it might have been really nice weather when they left. I mean, we saw that yesterday. It was really nice. And then all of a sudden, boom, it's hailing. It might have been really nice and all of a sudden, boom, there's legitimate danger. And in verse 38, they say, don't you care? Don't you care that we might drown? And I'm going to tell you that if we were to do like a Mount Rushmore of questions that people ask God, what's like the top four, top three questions people ask God? Don't you care? I fully believe if we're being honest, that might be the number one for a lot of us. And I'm not pointing at you, right? Don't you care? Is God putting me through this hell on purpose? I want to suggest something. God might not be putting you through a trial. If you're going through a trial or if you have been through a trial, God might not be the one putting you through it. How do I know that? If Statistically, statistically, one in four women, and they say one in, one in six, but they say that number is dramatically underreported. One in six men have been sexually abused in this room. Statistically, God did not cause that. God did not cause that. I, I, have, I have multiple friends whose spouses uh, had an affair, left, and their world is shattered. God did not cause that. God didn't say, this is my plan for that person. There are trials and storms that God is not behind. God was behind them getting in the boat. God is behind them going to get into the spiritual battle to save a man's soul. But he was not, I don't believe he was behind the wind and the waves. Because if he was, Jesus might have just gotten up and said, this is no big deal. Keep going. We'll be fine. This is my plan. Instead, he tells the wind and the waves, it says be quiet because that's like the nice way to say it. As I understand it, if you, if you were to like read it in the original language it was written in, it's a little more like shut up, like he's annoyed. I am not one who sees spiritual battles in every corner. 
I don't think that, you know, my, my favorite far side comic of all time is the guy who's casting demons out of broken vacuum cleaners. And I don't believe that. I don't believe that if I'm just driving down the street and my car breaks down, that that's automatically the devil of my broken carburetor. I don't know if I've told this story, but when I was 18 years old, on my 18th birthday, my parents handed me some car keys. I was so excited. And then they told me how much my car payment was going to be each month to a broke down 1989 Buick Century that I didn't want. Suddenly those car keys got a lot less cool. The next morning as I was driving to school, and I was annoyed that I had a car payment and everything like that, but I was excited I had a car. And the next morning as I was driving to school, two minutes after pulling on my driveway, that car broke down. But I don't think that was the devil, right? I, I don't. I see the grace of God in that a friend of mine, I, I limped into this um, Walgreens parking lot, and a friend of mine had forgotten their contacts or something and had to pull into the same Walgreens to get something. And I was like, oh, Lord, I've been delivered. This is before everybody had cell phones, you know. So I was like, what am I going to do? God might not have sent the trial, but he is walking with us through it. What happens, I think, is that we get this weird idea about the purpose of, of things that happen. And we say, well, you know what? Yes, yes, I was, I was uh, you know, uh, horribly mistreated. This terrible, evil thing happened to me. But, you know, God did that so that I could encourage someone else. That's like some weird spiritual Ponzi scheme. Where, all right, it would be like God saying, okay, I'm going to send somebody to just beat the tar out of Adam. So that when I send somebody else to beat the tar out of Bob, Adam can go, yep, God sent a bully in my life too. Did yours have brass knuckles? Oh, let me tell you. It could be worse. I don't, I don't think that's true. Is it possible that God allows horrible things in our lives? Yes, the Bible says that. Is it, is it possible that there's some trial that comes up and God says, I'm allowing that in your life so that you will trust me and that when the real storm comes, you'll be prepared? That's totally possible. But there is a difference between my car breaking down and I'm not sure how I'm going to pay for it and then seeing God miraculously provide and somebody coming and, and you know, literally murdering your children. My cousin went to visit her children in Arizona. She lived in Colorado. She went to visit her children in Arizona and she found them murdered. That wasn't from the Lord. If she had had like a delayed flight and had to trust God, I mean, I could see that, right? God is not the cause of these things, but he is walking through them with us. Just because there's a redemptive work happening, just because God is turning something horrible and he's saying, this is bad, but I'm going to find something good out of it, doesn't mean that God was the one going, I'm going to get them this time. Now, that being said, when they get to the other side of the lake, surely their faith was strengthened. If you see somebody and, and this person is running at you 
from the tombs, because that's creepy, but somebody is running at me from out of a cemetery, screaming, what do you want with me? I'm going to be freaked out. But if you've just been through Jesus quieting the wind and the waves, your perspective is just a little bit different. And I don't know that it's so one after the other. I don't know that it's so one after the other. When I was a missionary, there was a month, I remember it very clearly, but there was a month where I didn't have enough money. Not enough money had had come in. uh, And I was like, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And I was so stressed out. And I remember like muscles like cramping up because I was so tense and stressed out. And then the next day, I got an email from my point person back in America, and he said, hey, um, just so you know, like this huge check came in and out of nowhere, and it's way more than you need, which actually covered me in the next month. It was wonderful. And then, years later, I had another just weird season of life, a lot of things coming on. But I remembered that time specifically, because I was starting to feel myself tensing up again. And I said, I'm not going to do that. God's provided for me before. And I don't need the Charlie horse of stress and doubt. I'm going to trust God. And I went about my day, and yes, did God provide? Absolutely. I got to think that their faith was strengthened. Does God, is God putting you through hell? No. Is God walking with you through a broken and fallen world? Yes. Is God taking something horrible that was caused by either the nature of this fallen world or by somebody's sin or maybe even our own sin. And we're like, Lord, I'm so sorry. Can you take something this broken and find something good to come out of it? Yes. And they get to the other side and they see this man. And we're going to get into next week more about the actual process of him being delivered. But they get to the other side, they see this man, they see Jesus work. It's interesting how little they did. That's kind of one of the reasons where I'm I'm sort of like, you think, oh, Jesus brought them through the storm so their faith would be ready to minister in Decapolis. They didn't do anything. They're just kind of standing around. Jesus is the one doing all of the work. Jesus is the one who delivers the man, who casts out the demons, who gets rid of the pigs. We'll talk about why that's important next week. When the people come, they don't talk to the disciples, they talk to Jesus. Jesus is the one doing all the work. It's possible that this whole thing with the wind and the waves, yeah, it made, it made uh, the situation in that moment easier. It's also possible that it was just a general strengthening of their faith for a later day. But when, they, when Jesus does deliver this man, frees him from, from the bondage and the torment that he was under. This was interesting to me. Verse 18. Chapter 5, verse 18, where it says, as Jesus was getting into the boat, so Jesus is getting ready to go back. The man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. He begged to go with Jesus. I, one of my mentors 
as a pastor, one of my mentors said that, um, you know, there are, there are things people have begged to be able to do in his, in his time as, you know, working with churches. He said, no one's ever begged me, uh, to clean the toilets. And, uh, and we kind of chuckled because we had both been, uh, church janitors at different points in our career. And, 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 uh, he said, no one's ever begged to be- clean the toilets. I don't think it's, I, I'm sure there were a lot of people asking to follow Jesus, but this guy is begging. He doesn't want to just follow Jesus. He wants to be traveling with Jesus. You came and you freed me. I want to go with you and help free others. There's nothing wrong with that request. There's nothing wrong with that request. In fact, I'm sympathetic. I would want that. You know, can I, can I say something nice about you? I like you guys. I like being your pastor. Like, I think sometimes people are like, well, he has to put up with us because he, you know, he's, I like being the pastor of this church. I would rather be with Jesus back then. I'm just going to tell you the truth. I'd rather have been one of those guys walking with Jesus. So that's it. That's the one job. <laughs> but Jesus says no. I've got a different plan for you. And he says, I want you to go back to your people and tell them all of the things that the Lord has done in your life. All of the things that the Lord has done in your life. This man was uniquely placed to preach to the people of the Decapolis. Decapolis, um, you know, Opolis is something we understand, like metropolis. We understand like an opolis is some kind of city. Decapolis, deca means 10. So it was thought that there were 10 villages that sort of made up this bigger city or region called the Decapolis. And these, they were Jewish, but culturally they were very Greek. And, and there are places like that, right? Like, um, America, you know, from sea to, from sea to shining sea. But if you go down to the bayou in Louisiana, and you talk like this, you know, and going down on the thing, you know, and tell you what, man. Very different than my experience growing up in Western Washington. They're both American, but they're very different. The Decapolis, they were they were Jewish. That's important in the story. We'll talk about it next week. But but culturally, stylistically, they were very much like the Greeks and the Romans. Jesus' 12 disciples, they grew up on the other side of the lake. They were placed to reach that part of Israel. This guy was placed to preach to the Decapolis. Now, there are people who are uniquely called, we call them missionaries, but they have like a unique ability to transfer into another culture. That's not something that just everybody can do. And people try, and then they, they go and they leave, you know, you grew up in, uh, let's say you grew up in Salem, and you say, I think God is calling me to go to Czechoslovakia, or I think God is calling me to go to Singapore, or I think God is calling me to go wherever. And then you go there, and you don't know, you're like, what do I, uh, I, I think I need to go back. Because you know how to operate in Salem, but you don't know how to operate in Singapore. But then there are people, that's just their gifting. 
My friend, Dr. Dr. Wayne Schock, who uh, goes to our sister church down in Oregon City, for 30 years was a missionary in in first uh, Taiwan and then in mainland China, speaks uh, Mandarin fluently. He's a little bit lost here in in, the Portland area. He's trying to figure it out. I appreciate him. He was like a natural over there. So there are people who have that unique gifting, but for most of us, we are placed to preach where God has put us. Who is most likely to reach a group of people? It's somebody like them. That's usually how it goes. You have coworkers that I'll never meet. You have neighbors that I don't live next to. You have family members that I'm not related to. And if you think that, well, who's going who's gonna to bring the truth, the good news of Jesus to them? Well, we got to get Pastor Adam to come. I don't, I don't know them. You do. Am I happy to sit and talk with somebody? Yes. If somebody's in the hospital, am I happy to go and pray with them? Yeah, I, I, went, and, I went to the hospital. I went out to St. Vincent's on Friday. I'd never met these people. It was always awkward when that's the case. But I was able, because of somebody said, hey, you know, my, my son is here in the hospital, and he lives up north, and, and he's like, you know, my son's in the hospital. Like, yes, I'll go and meet this guy I've never met and pray with him. Happy to do that. But the truth is that God has uniquely placed all of us where we are at. Uh, in one of, one of the epistles, no, I'm sorry, it's in the book of Acts, but Luke says that God had given them an open door to do the ministry. Where's your open door? This guy, we, we actually, we aren't ever told his name, but this guy is delivered and Jesus says, no, you don't follow me, you go and you preach to the, these people because you're uniquely placed. They know you. You speak the language, so to speak. You know the culture. You're uniquely placed. There, There's a open door for all of us. I feel like right now there's an open door for me to be on the campus at View Acres Elementary. So I'm trying every chance I get to be on the campus because I feel like right now there's an open door. There's an open door for you. Well, I don't know what to say. I don't. I'm going to tell you this. I, have, I've, I know that there are people that are better at telling people about Jesus than I am. They, they speak more eloquently or clearly or whatever. But here's what I know. I've never had to have somebody tell me how to talk about my wife. Because I love her and I know her. Those two things, those two facts, I love her and I know her. I've never had a problem telling somebody how great she is. If you have the love of God in your heart, and you spend time with God, and you know God, the right words to say will come out. And you know, the funny thing is, if somebody were to say, hey, Adam, and then they ask me some question about my wife, maybe it's some historical fact about her childhood, and I go, you know, I don't know. I wasn't there when she was eight. But I can ask her. If somebody comes to you and they say, hey, I've got this question about God or the Christian faith or whatever, it's okay to say, I don't know. I do that all the time. And I've literally gone to school and I'm going to school for this. It's okay to say I don't know. But if I know the love of God and if I spend time with God, the right words to say are going to come. 
This guy didn't need somebody to give him a training course in how to preach the gospel. Jesus delivered him, and Jesus sent him. And Jesus has delivered us, and Jesus is sending us. And it could be, you know, I have found this to be true. It could be that you go through something, and then that is God showing you how to best minister to someone. My dad died when I was 13 years old. The, the aftermath of that is definitely shaping the way that, that we are praying, you know, my, my wife and I are praying for and seeking, how can we best love and serve our friends, the Stoles, who are praying for, and the, the husband and father, Brian, passed away about a month ago. And so we're like, okay, Lord, how do we, how do we do this? How do we best support them? We know they've got a great church and a great network, but how can we be part of that? But because I have gone through that, there's a couple of things that, that we're aware of. And it was funny, I talked to Angela Stoll on Friday, saw her at school picking up our kids. And I, I just said, hey, you know, what can we do for you? And it was interesting. Some of the things she said mirrored some of the things that I had, and Angie had kind of been sensing as we'd been talking and praying. But it was informed by an experience I went through. So I think there's a sense in which, yeah, I might be uniquely placed to minister to somebody who's lost a father. You might be uniquely placed to minister to somebody who's gone through an affliction, you know, Matt and, and Bob with your cancers, you know, um, the, the stuff that, that you've gone through. Maybe, maybe you had a, um, you know, my grandma, good night. My grandma lost her husband and her middle son in the same day. That's a unique thing. But every so often she'd meet somebody who's going through a trauma and you never know the opportunity that God's going to give you because you're uniquely placed to preach. Well, do I have to get a sermon? I'm not a good at talking. Adam, you're, you, you use words. You just have to tell them what you know. I'll close with this. This is as the band comes up. Uh, this is one of my favorite stories ever because it involves um, music. But two guys, 1967, become Christians. They were, they were into drugs. They were into Eastern mysticism. And God gets a hold of their life. And they were in a band. And that band was signed to a record label. And they said, well, we need to tell somebody. And the first thing they thought of was, well, they were just down the street from where they knew the head of their record label lived. So they went to Paul's house because they were signed to Apple Records, the Beatles record label. And so the first person that this guy ever told about Jesus was Paul McCartney. And he didn't know anything except John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not die but will have everlasting life. He knew the love of God that had changed his life and he knew he needed to tell somebody. So he went and told Paul McCartney. And I love it because I love the Beatles. But God's put somebody in your life. He was uniquely placed to, to preach the gospel to the Beatles, and we are not. But you are uniquely placed to preach the gospel in your home, in your school, in your neighborhood, at your work, wherever you, wherever you are and you, and you operate. And I'm not. You are. And I'm uniquely placed to be where I am and you aren't. Amen? Now this morning, 
we are going to take communion together. And uh, I, like I said, I was a guest at a couple of churches this week because a, a, an assignment I had for school was I had to go to churches that were very different from ours. And so this week, I spent a wonderful morning uh, at the Eastern Orthodox Church down the hill. And uh, they couldn't have been nicer and more welcoming to me. They let me eat the bread, but I couldn't take the cup because I'm not Orthodox. I went to the Catholic Church. Same thing, by the way. They, they were the, so welcoming and, and, and delightful. They wouldn't let me take either. And I have taken communion in a Catholic church before. I think they thought I was just Irish Catholic because of the red beard and everything. Turns out that that's not uh, okay with them. So I wanted to be respectful. You know, I did it when I was in my 20s and I felt kind of like being a punk, you know. We have an open communion table. Anyone is welcomed who says, yeah, I believe. I want to read... The Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The Orthodox Church had a big big loaf kind of bread, um, and I don't blame them because if you just read bread, maybe that's the first thing you think of. But it would have been a flat bread maybe more like a tortilla. We use matzahs. But it would have been a flat bread, unleavened, because it was the feast of Passover. And that represented there being no sin. And Jesus had no sin when he went to the cross, but all of the sin of the world was placed on him. And then it says in verse 25, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, so that whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves, and that is why many of you are sick and a number have fallen asleep." Well, that's heavy. What does that mean? I'll tell you what I think, and I believe. I believe that this is open to anyone who has faith. And when it says that you shouldn't eat or drink in an unworthy manner, the only thing that has ever made me worthy is Jesus. And if you are not a Christian, I would say don't take communion. Don't, don't identify with something you don't believe yet. But if you want to have faith, there is an invitation to just say, yes, I want to believe in Jesus. And this represents his body that was broken for me, his blood that was shed for me. And I want that. Then come on up. It says recognizing the body of Christ. I think part of that is that we just recognize each other. Jesus' body is the church. And I recognize my brothers, my sisters, my spiritual mothers and fathers, our spiritual sons and daughters. And I'm so thankful to do this together with all of you. So normally we take our offering right now. Can we hold for one song, Randy? Is that okay? He's shaking his head no, but he's also smiling at me. So I'm just going to say that he, that's okay. <laughs> but what I'm going to ask you to do is to as we do this first song, to, to come, to grab, then go back to your seat, 
And as we're playing, maybe you need to pray, reflect, discern, and then we'll take it together before we do our offering. Is that good? All right.